This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, now open after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Learn more at virginiahistory.org. This podcast is also sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of How We Got Here. I'm your host, Rachel DePampa. As you probably are well aware, we had planned to have this story in season six, but it has such an amazing guest who is a notorious storyteller, a really good one. And Colton wrote this episode. And so we decided to give you all of the story in all of its glory, as long as it goes. We're calling this one Lincoln's Visit to Richmond. I cannot wait for you to hear it. So let's get going. The Confederate capital of Richmond is evacuated. Much of the city set ablaze by those now on the run. Union troops take the city, and the bloody chess game of the Civil War tilts toward the men in blue. The Confederate crown jewel is gone, and on April 4, 1865, the president, known as the Great Emancipator, walks the streets of the enemy's former capital with his son by his side. And for this story, we're going back to the man who helped us kick off this little podcast. Longtime listeners will know his voice well, Mr. Mike Gorman. Well, look how high tech we've gotten. We went from uh, recording uh, in the less than windward side of the Cold Harbor Visitor Center to uh, over computers. So we're really stepping it up here. Gorman is with the Richmond National Battlefield Park, a masterful storyteller if you're just joining us on how we got here. You know, one of the great things about this particular topic is that there is no way any self-respecting historian can come on and say, I know the whole story. There will be an historian 30 years from now if you do this podcast, maybe it'll be me, who knows. They will have found other things, a lot of other things, things that change, you know, how we see it. It's so illustrative of the nature of history in general is that you know you take what you've got now that doesn't mean you're right that doesn't mean you've seen everything but it's what we've got right now and so let's listen to what we've got right now when it comes to lincoln's visit to richmond and of course this story begins a few days earlier you need a little backstory Lincoln is in City Point, modern-day Hopewell, Virginia, just a short trip along the James River to Richmond. It's not an accident that he's kind of hanging out nearby. General Grant had invited him down to City Point, knowing full well, I mean, the writing is on the way. If you read the, the invitation, we don't know for sure, but read between the lines. You know, Mr. President, why don't you come down to City Point? It would do you some good. (laughs) Can you imagine saying that to the president? But what he's really saying is, I'm about to end this thing, and uh, you might want to be there. Lincoln and his entourage, including Mary, come down to City Point. And there's a lot going on there, you know. I mean, he steps off the boat the day of the Battle of Fort Stedman. I mean, he's actually walking among the detritus the dead men and uh, wreckage of this battle. Tad Lincoln is with him. He's going to have his birthday soon. This was a family reunion of sorts. Lincoln brings Mary and Tad 
and his eldest son, Robert, is on Grant's staff. But this is no party. There was still a city to take, and if that happened, what would happen to those who fought for the Confederacy? The answer came during a meeting between Lincoln and his generals, Ulysses S. Grant, William Sherman, and David Dixon Porter. You know, these Confederates are going to start coming to you for surrenders. What terms are you going to give them? What terms would the president accept? And that's a very big question. Most generals really don't like to wade into politics. This is as political as it gets. But Lincoln makes it very clear that I'm covering you. I've got your back. If they'll stop fighting and go home, put down their weapons, great, let them go. Makes it very clear that the idea is not reprisals, is not a bunch of treason trials, is not a bunch of necktie parties. Uh, you know, hang Jefferson Davis from the nearest tree, no. Sherman apparently even asked Lincoln straight up, what should we do with Jefferson Davis if we capture him? And Lincoln, you know, hymns and halls and kind of tells a funny story, basically indicating, you know, if he gets away, this solves our problems. If he, if he flees to Cuba, if he gets to Mexico, then I don't have to deal with him. This is fantastic. You know, so it's all but telling him, you know, lay off. All right, just let's end this thing. Let's bring it on home. So, you know, that meeting right there is enough to go, whoa, oh my gosh. You know, here's Lincoln dictating the, the post-war future. I will stress this a lot in the course of this, this podcast and this interview is how many opportunities do we really get to see Lincoln practically dealing with the aftermath of war, of reconstruction, as we think about it. And it's all right here. This is it. This is the only chance we get, the only peak we get into, you know, what was in his head? What did he see a post-war America looking like? What was his second term going to be about? His whole first term has been about the war, has been about ending this thing. And now his second term is going to be about what do we do? And there are a lot of forces out there, a lot of them that are like Jefferson Davis deserves to hang. The Confederate soldiers should not, you know, should be punished, should not be allowed to go go free or bear arms or vote or, you know, there's a lot of that, those forces out there. And so Lincoln is saying when he's meeting with uh, Porter and, and Grant and Sherman, I'll cover you. you, you go get this done. And it was no secret something big was brewing for the Union. The pieces were in place. An attack was coming. The writing's on the wall. Everybody knows. There's no other reason for Porter and Grant and Sherman to be in the same room than that this is coming to an end. When the big attack on Petersburg comes on April 2nd, 1865, and Lee's lines are broken, the domino has been tipped. Even though we know how the war ends about a week later, at the time, questions were looming following April 2nd about what General Robert E. Lee was going to do next. For him, this war was not over just yet. You know, is he gonna turn and fight? Is he gonna get resupplied? At the time, they're not thinking, look at this, we just captured Petersburg. It's so obvious. There's gonna be a surrender at Appomattox in a week. No. Lee's footloose now. He's unshackled from Richmond. He's unshackled from Petersburg. And that makes him dangerous. In season six of the podcast, we told you about the burning of Richmond, and we won't get into that here. But after Petersburg falls, the Confederates evacuate their capital. And as their last men are leaving on April 3rd, Union cavalry are riding into the burning city. What's interesting here is, even now, Mike Gorman says we don't really know what the Union planned to do once it captured Richmond. Many times as I go looking at this, and as many times as I study this, I will guarantee you somewhere in the Pentagon, there is probably a war plan about how to invade and capture Liechtenstein, okay? When you get there, take over the beautiful castle, use that as your headquarters, all this kind of stuff. It's like nobody planned practically. And I love Liechtenstein, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to capture Liechtenstein. 
That'd be kind of funny, but if, point being, nobody had made practical plans as far as how, when we capture, or if we capture Richmond, what do we do? With the main commander of the Union's Army of the James out west hunting Robert E. Lee, command was given to a young soldier named Godfrey Weitzel. So Weitzel is not only a new guy, he's very young, he doesn't, you know, know what strings to pull. He's not politically connected. He's an engineer, a German engineer. And he's now riding into Richmond to take the city's surrender. Right there. When you're in your 20s and you're saying, oh, you know, go capture Richmond and, you know, manage the city. Uh, what? Are you serious? I mean, I've been in those situations where you are definitely doing a job that is above your pay grade. This is about, you know, six levels above his pay grade. This is, this is a kid, and he's got the biggest job on the planet. All eyes are on him as he rides into town, takes the city's surrender, and begins to try to bring back some semblance of law and order and semblance of United States authority. Now, is he going to trip up? <laughs> oh, boy, yes, he's going to trip up. And he's going to find himself increasingly without political cover. And that's going to be a big problem. But for right now, Godfrey Weitzel has captured Richmond, Virginia. People in the North are going crazy. Absolutely crazy. Newspapers couldn't be printed fast enough. Richmond's capture was in the papers in San Francisco the next day. Every telegraph wire in America hot with the news. You know, they're going to send a telegram from Richmond, the first in four years, you know, that says we're in town, we've captured the city. And the people at the War Department in D.C. are throwing their hats in the air and Stanton is even smiling. Stanton, of course, is Edwin McMaster Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War. It's incredible, you know, people are really seeing this as the moment, you know, where things start to point inexorably towards victory. And it's Godfrey Weisel in the chair. Lincoln is down at City Point. Gorman says Lincoln also may have agreed to take the trip to City Point to get away from the pressures he had faced in D.C. for years. Stanton wants me to do this, and Seward wants me to do that, and Congress is trying to push me in this direction. When he goes to City Point, it's just him. He's the man, right? It's almost like he's broken off and said, you know what, I'm doing this on my own. And so Stanton is hearing about these things. He's not saying this is how we should play. Lincoln is doing things and Stanton has to respond. The first thing he does, he gets in a carriage and tours Petersburg with Grant. Not even 24 hours before, is just completely swarming with Confederate infantry, Confederate soldiers. And now here's the President of the United States. Huh? Really? You know, he wasn't trying to hide or be sneaky or, you know, but it just takes one guy with a, with a rifle on a roof. And, you know, maybe we're talking about a different future, a different America. After the tour, Lincoln returned to City Point and news of his tour reached Secretary of War Stanton. And naturally, Stanton was concerned. So he sent a message. This is probably my favorite back and forth telegram. And it shows you the relationship uh, not only between the two men in normal circumstances, but especially now. He says, I congratulate you and the nation on the glorious news in your telegram just received. Allow me to respectfully ask you to consider whether you ought to expose the nation to the consequences of any disaster to yourself in the pursuit of a treacherous and dangerous enemy like the rebel army. If it was a question concerning yourself only, I should not presume to say a word. Commanding generals are in the line of their duty in running such risks. But is the political head of a nation in the same condition? Very respectfully, Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. So Lincoln just got that. He's been to Peter's. This is all April 3rd, and he fires back. I mean, do you get the tone in there? Listen to the tone. Stanton is, is saying, you know, oh, oh, Mr. President. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're excited. I'm sure you're uh, very brought up in the moment, but why expose yourself to the dangers? Oh, come on, right? 
And Lincoln's not missing a beat. So he fires back. 5 p.m., April 3rd. Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Thanks for your caution, but I've already been to Petersburg, stayed with General Grant an hour and a half, and returned here. It is certain that Richmond is in our hands, and I think I will go there tomorrow. I will take care of myself. A Lincoln. Look at that. Get all sassy. Get all sassy. Isn't Gorman just the best? (laughs) This is why we invite him back over and over. Mike Gorman is amazing. So not only did Lincoln just tour the carnage in Petersburg, he planned to go to the Confederacy's former headquarters immediately after the Union took its shaky control with a young German engineer trying to contain the chaos. Maybe this is an impulsive decision. Maybe this is just a, I can't go to Richmond. Everybody's like, why did, why did Lincoln go to Richmond? Man, I put my hand on a stack of Bibles, put a gun to my head and say, tell me, Mike, why did Lincoln, what is your take? What is your take about why? I'd be like, tell my family I love them. I don't know. Maybe it's just that Stan's called him out and is, you know, trying to get him not to do all these things. And, you know, he's saying, it's my time, man. I'm here. Okay, let's throw in another one. Little Tad is about to have his birthday tomorrow. What a birthday present. I'm the president of the United States. I'm the only person in the world that can look at the Navy and say, I want to go to Richmond and we're going. And they will. Maybe it's. You know what? I have a real important duty to perform because that poor little 25-year-old uh, engineer named Weitzel needs needs some guidance, needs some political help, and maybe I can give it. Maybe not. Maybe some combination of all these things. In the midst of all this, Lincoln is dealing with marital troubles. Mary Lincoln left City Point in a very public huff. Everyone there saw it. So the president is left there with Tad, who, as you heard, is having a birthday the next day, Much like the boss coming to your desk five minutes before you're supposed to leave, giving you a new project to get done by the next day. That's what Lincoln does to the Navy on the night of April 3rd, 1865. The fastest way to Richmond is the James River, but it will not be an easy trip. At 5 p.m., It's going to get dark. It's April. The river is heavily mined. It takes about three and a half hours. In the best of conditions, it's not going to be the best of conditions. Admiral Porter, poor guy, now gets this order from the president saying, you know, I'm going to go to Richmond tomorrow and, you know, I need the river cleared. Wow. Okay, you know, this would be like a three-day operation, maybe. And you want me to do it overnight. Something is in there that's impulsive. Something is in there that is spur of the moment because the sailors and Porter literally spend all night clearing this river for the president to go up. As you might imagine, such a quick job involves lots of people. And for things to go smoothly, everything has to go right. And there are about a billion things that can go wrong. When we look at this, always keep that in mind, is this is not a, oh, the president's coming, you know, the Secret Service scrambles and everything goes peachy keen. We're going up the James River. You know, there were Confederate ironclads here. There were mines, giant ones, thousand pounds of powder that will blow you up. And you've got Tad and the president and Admiral Porter headed up to Richmond on April 4th. If that's not a premise for, you know, a great movie, then I don't know what is. It shows you that humility that we have to take. As historians, we don't know. And it never will. You have to see Stanton's side of all of this if you think about the war kind of being a chess match. The king has now gone into enemy territory. He's seen the bodies still warm, killed recently in Petersburg. And he is now going into the heart of enemy headquarters that was just recently abandoned and is doing so without the army and just a few men from the Navy. There is no great military entourage that's going to carry him up into Richmond. There's there's not going to be this triumphal procession through town. There's no way to guarantee really his safety. 
So on April 4, 1865, Admiral Porter mustered every vessel he could find to make as grand a naval spectacle as possible for the president's trip. Today's the day, and they take off. I mean, it's gorgeous. The sun is shining, the, the flags are flying, the pennants on the mast and everything fluttering in the breeze. And oh my God, you know, Porter just had to be, you know, tears rolling down his naval officer's cheeks as he takes in this scene. And it's all falling to me and it's going to happen. But in the back of his brain, he's like, oh my God, I hope they got all the mines. After setting off from City Point, as Mike Gorman puts it, what happens next is a comedy of errors. They did not encounter any mines, but just seven miles south of Richmond, this entourage of boats arrives at Drury's Bluff. Right there at Drury's Bluff, the Confederates had sunk several vessels to obstruct the James. And I mean, we're not talking, you know, little boats. We're talking proper steamships. The idea being that ain't nobody coming through here at Drury's Bluff. And again, nobody had kind of anticipated that. Porter knew about it. That's why the Navy has not operated in these you know, close to the Drury's Bluff waters since 1862, is they knew they couldn't, they couldn't get past without some kind of work crew to do it. Well, now here's that work crew, so to speak, only it was the naval procession carrying the President of the United States. They were forced to stop as they figured out a way over and through the blockage. And nobody really knows what to do. Now, there's a lot of apocryphal stories, and a lot of them are authored by Admiral Porter. Unfortunately for historians everywhere, Porter, being the main witness to all of this, saw himself in later years as a novelist and as someone who would tell a capital S story. And this brings us to a story that, if true, nearly led to the death of Abraham Lincoln. One of the stories that is told is that Lincoln, having to stop you know, aboard his vessel before they could get up uh, past Drury's Bluff, is like, we're, we're going. The idea was to put him in a rowboat. Yeah. The president of the United States and his son in a rowboat, and they're going to row past the obstruction. Porter says, well, you know what, I'll do one better, is I've got my steam launch, uh, which is a, a little steam vessel, kind of a glorified tugboat. And tell you what, we'll have the steam launch pull the rowboat so that if it strikes a torpedo, you see a torpedo being a mine. If it strikes a torpedo, the steam launch will blow up, but not the rowboat. Good idea, huh? Yeah. And so the apocryphal story is that, you know, they put down the rowboat, and Lincoln is waiting in it for them to get their act together with the steam launch when the engine's rotation caused the, the water wheel to start to suck in the rowboat and Lincoln almost gets chopped to bits there. You know, did it happen? I don't know. That's a very dramatic story. And it's very clear that literally they've encountered a roadblock. They cannot go any further. This is like God saying, stop. Don't go. But Lincoln was determined to get to Richmond. It was still early in the day, but they were also contending with how much sun is left. And the president is not going to camp on the bank of the James, so time's a-wasting. And sure enough, here goes the steam launch with Lincoln and Tad and a small contingent of naval officers, a signal officer from the Army, and rowers from the Navy, literally sailors, rowing stroke by stroke from Drury's Bluff all the way up to Richmond. That was the plan. And yet another strange event occurs in the form of a pile bridge, which had been erected by the Confederates. It was at a spot on the river called Tree Hill, which is an area right off Route 5 today. The pile bridge had a slide in the middle of it to allow ships to pass through, and you had to go through the hole under the bridge to go up or down the river. Enter Admiral David Farragut. 
He was the next highest-ranking officer in the U.S. Navy, and he was with the Army of the James when it took Richmond. Farragut took inventory of the Confederate vessels left floating in Rocket's Landing, and he had a grand plan. What he's going to do is he's going to jump in this, this boat and he's going to pilot it down the James. He's going to pop the hatch at City Point and be like, Mr. President, I present to you this Confederate vessel captured on behalf of the U.S. Navy, you know, whatever. But he's going to make this very, very dramatic scene. Oh, that's all cool. And he does, you know, he, he jumps in the boat and he starts piling it down the river until he encounters that pile bridge. But instead of going through the hole under the bridge, Farragut accidentally runs aground right next to it. And the ship swings over, blocking the opening. Creating a closed door. Here comes Admiral Porter in his steam launch, towing the president. He can look up and he can see this, you know, there's this vessel and it's clearly obstructing the river now. And there's a guy hailing us, you know, hello, hello, hello. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's Admiral Farragut. Oh, okay. I mean, they must have broke out laughing at this. Remember, the two highest ranking officers in the U.S. Navy. And so now Porter's going to have to help him off. So Porter uses his steam launch to try and push Farragut's boat out of the way. Remember how we called this voyage a comedy of errors? Yeah. Porter's steam launch gets stuck too. Now, both admirals in the U.S. Navy have grounded their vessels, leaving the steam launch pinned against the bridge, Farragut's vessel pinning that against the bridge, the only vessel left is the rowboat. God is saying, stop. You may notice a theme here. Lincoln keeps saying, let's go. So in the rowboat, the president, his son Tad, Admiral Porter, and that collection of sailors navigate around the traffic jam and the sailors row the remaining mile to Richmond. The journey almost complete, there was one more obstacle in their way. Now, where do you land? Well, we've got a port here in Richmond. It's called Rockets Landing. Makes sense, yeah? Well, yeah, problem is the dock is about, you know, eight feet above the water. Can't land there. Porter's never been there. Certainly not by water, not while he's been an admiral. Where do you land? be someplace so they keep on rowing as porter later recalled in one of his fanciful accounts they came up on a bunch of rocks in the james river well anybody who's been up in the james river knows exactly where that is that's going to be near 14th street the 14th street bridge so they rode all the way up until they couldn't go any further literally the rocks are in their way apparently grounded their little rowboat there among the rocks so this is porter's second grounding of the day Things usually don't go so well when uh, when admirals ground their vessels, and he's done it twice with the president in attendance. Apparently at this point, Lincoln cracks a joke about how they'll need the army engineers to help them off the rocks. Porter is able to shift onto a little sandbar. And they're going to start their visit to Richmond in the most humble possible way. Mike Gorman is going to give us an account of how that visit went, but he says it's worth noting there isn't one version that everyone agrees upon. Anyone who has studied Lincoln will be familiar with the names Nicolay and Hay. They were Abe's personal secretaries who were with him nearly every day, except for this day. And they're really critical of all the accounts that were hitting the papers about his visit to Richmond. This is what they wrote. They said, there remains no trustworthy account of this strange presidential entry. The printed narratives of it written from memory after the lapse of years are so evidently colored by fancy that they do not invite credence. Whoa. So they're saying everybody's making stuff up. We can't figure out 
What the hell happened here? But instead of leaving it at that, the pair, Nicolay and Hay, try to write about the visit themselves, with their main source being none other than Admiral Porter, Mr. Capital S of storytelling that Gorman told us about earlier. So their version has issues on its own. Just because something's published does not make it right. It could be vastly deadly wrong. And it's in print. And people will be on solid historical grounds if you cite Nicolay and Hayes said this. And I'll be like, yes, they did. But they weren't there. But the truth is, where Lincoln landed was on a sandbar at the foot of 17th Street. So those of you that are familiar with Richmond can sort of picture 17th Street there, goes down to bottoms up, pizza, and then there's the flood wall, which then had a bridge over the canal. It was called a drawbridge, actually. It somehow opened in the middle. And what was happening here, was this, this is a great way to get to the James River, was to access the, that sandbar over that bridge. So when Lincoln lands, he's landing, not a, just in a point where you could put a boat, a, a rowboat, but that you could also have access to the city. Anywhere else you'd land, you know, you'd have to figure out a way to get from your boat to the ground and then from the ground across the canal to the city. He doesn't have to do that. They've just landed right there. The President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, is finally in Richmond. Not in some grandiose spectacle with cannons firing as he steps off a steamship at Rocket's Landing, but rather in a rowboat on a sandbar. Remember the young German engineer who's supposed to bring law and order back to the city, Godfrey Weitzel? Well, he and his team had identified this sandbar as the best place to build a pontoon bridge across the river in order to access the Manchester neighborhood on the South Bank. Remember, the Confederates burned all the bridges as they made their escape the day before. Let's sort of flip the script here and look at this from the standpoint of the formerly enslaved people in Richmond. For them, the Union Army coming in is, wow, this is the day. Look at this, we're finally free. Well, what does freedom really look like if you're in this situation? Because all of a sudden, this formerly enslaved population gets put to work by the Union authorities, whether it's clearing debris or prepping a, you know, an area for a pontoon bridge. Is this freedom? Because it sure looks like the way it was before. And imagine being in that work crew that's down there, just drudgery. We're making a, a road where we're piling up sand, but this is just annoying. And you look over and there is Abraham. Now, if I were scripting this and turned this into a Hollywood producer, they would be like, dude, this is over the top. Calm down. You know, you don't have to throw everything at the wall. The kid's birthday, that was enough. You know, his wife leaving him in a huff, that's, you know, that's enough. The ridiculousness on the James River, come on, man. I mean, you know, is this going to be a six-hour movie? Stop it. But that's exactly what happens. He runs into this work party that's down there. And Gorman says this part of the story checks out because there's someone wandering around the sandbar at this time, a reporter from Boston by the name of Charles Coffin. And he sees this boat land with a very recognizable figure stepping off. Any reporter, rule number one, do not make yourself the story. Coffin couldn't resist. He sees this work party. There are these former slaves, and Abraham Lincoln has just landed. Maybe to some of them, he's just a, a crazy man on a rowboat and a top hat. I don't know. They're going about their work. Well, Coffin, too, wrote several versions of this account. However, all of his accounts are based off of, and yes, some of them do get a little fanciful and grow out the story a little bit, but they never deviate from the truth like Porter's uh, do because he always had his very first dispatch that he sent later that day. They got published in a Boston newspaper the very next day. So they're all based on that grounding of, I saw this today. And he wrote about it that night. 
and he said, not far away, a lieutenant had some 40 or 50 colored men at work laying a bridge across the canal. That's the pontoon bridge. Turning to one, I said, I suppose you were a slave. Yes, boss. Would you like to see the man who gave you your freedom, Abraham Lincoln? There he is. He leaped in wild ecstasy and tossed his hat into the air. In a moment, the entire company were shouting and running to gather around the man who had given them their freedom. I recall a Negro woman who was jumping in ecstasy, clapping her hands and shouting, glory, glory, glory. She could find no other words. We, who have always had our liberty, we cold-blooded Anglo-Americans, can have no adequate realization of the ecstasy of that moment on the part of these colored people of Richmond. They were drunk with ecstasy. They leaped in the air, hugged and kissed one another, surged around the little group in a wild delirium of joy. And they would gladly have prostrated themselves before him, allowed him to walk on their bodies, if by doing so they could have expressed their joy. He acknowledges it in this quote. I love that he does it in this quote. He acknowledges this is this is a white man's eyes. Right? We cool-blooded Anglo-Americans says we we have no idea as these people are experiencing what to them must have felt like the emancipation event. For them, this is the moment. They've been in Richmond. They've been slaves. They've been taken over by the Union Authority. And they've been put to work. And now here's Abraham Lincoln. Is anybody going to tell you that slavery is going to go on and on after this moment? No way. Slavery is dead forever. You know why? Because I'm looking at Abraham Lincoln. There he is. So it becomes their event now, as much as Porter's event, as much as Coffin's event. So. I love that you have these narratives all crashing together right there on this little ridiculous sandbar at 17th Street where everybody's voice gets to be heard. Unfortunately for us as historians, not one account from any of these formerly enslaved people has yet surfaced. I don't have a single one. And I detest that. I mean, that is the awful legacy of slavery. So many of these people would have been illiterate or transient. They probably didn't stay in Richmond for, for very long after the war. But somewhere, some old man had to been spinning yards to his grandchildren. Yeah, I was there that day. I saw Abraham Lincoln come into Richmond and I knew, I knew it was over. You know that had to happen. And they didn't write it down. Lincoln's tour of the city is about to begin, but he's having trouble getting off the sandbar. Remember, it's just Lincoln, his son Tad, Admiral Porter, a few sailors, two naval officers, and a signal officer from the Army. The formerly enslaved people were rushing toward Lincoln, trying to touch him, speak with him. Porter's looking at this as a, and he's right, is that this is a problem. This is now a security problem, and it's on me. If something goes wrong, if, if, if Lincoln gets stabbed or shot or, you know, the whole world is going to be like, where were you, border, you swine? And that's that's the terrifying reality that he's now having to face. He went from today is my day. I'm going to have all these flags flying and naval salutes and everything like that to, oh, my God, the president is unintended. And instead of getting back into the rowboat to wait for more sailors to arrive, Lincoln once again says, let's go. He wanted to go to the headquarters of the Union authorities, and he wants to meet the young Godfrey Weitzel. Weitzel knew that Lincoln could be coming. He just didn't know when exactly he'd arrive. And even if Weitzel had prepared, he would certainly expect the president to land at Rocket's Landing, not stepping off a rowboat on a sandbar. So he was completely flat-footed, there is nobody there to attend to the president. Lincoln apparently had to turn to one of the former slaves and say, how do I get there? Well, again, 
I want to read that account. But we don't have it. But now it becomes a walk through the streets. Now, if we thought this was kind of an isolated event down at the sandbar, as they push up 17th Street to Main Street, they're going to the market. What we think of as the farmer's market today was this rather large structure in which anything that could be sold in Richmond was being sold. And remember, the people of Richmond didn't have a whole lot of stuff. So when the Union Army comes in and they start setting up the market stalls and everything like that, all of a sudden, there's stuff. So when Lincoln walks up to Main Street, it's like going to the mall circa 1981. Everybody's there and everybody's going to see him. And it becomes their story, too. And for their story, we turn back to the account from the journalist, Charles Coffin. Coffin tells us this in an unpublished letter. But he said, uh, we landed a short distance above the Libby prison. For those of you that are following along, you know, historian tip number one, when you get a location clue like that, there you go. Doesn't say anything about rockets landing, says we landed above, meaning upriver from Libby prison, which was the 20th and care. So there's that sandbar. We landed a short distance above the Libby, crossed the canal and walked straight to Main Street. Up that, and when he says up, he means upriver. So we're going west. Then Mr. Lincoln leading Tad by his left hand, Admiral Porter at his right. Myself at his left, part of the time leading Tad, who had hard work to get along in the crowd. Remember, they're all pushing in. This little boy is having a hard time with it. Captain Pearson of the Army and our other officer, I don't know who, came next. Then six more sailors with carbines. This is the order. And he even made this little sketch map and showed us, you know, exactly where everybody was. Said Lincoln wore his overcoat, which was quite long and reached below the knees and a stovepipe hat. His servant followed with a shawl on his arm. Those, I believe, are all the persons in this party. His servant followed with a shawl on his arm. Who is that? I want to hear from that guy. The way people in the past were looking at it, even abolitionists were just like, oh, that's his servant. Oh, that's a guy who's experiencing this event too. I want to hear from him. Drives me nuts. But it's cool that that letter was written uh, to Thomas Nast, who was a cartoonist who was developing a print of this event. And he and Nast, to his credit, wanted to get it right. So he sought out Coffin and got him to tell him. And that's what he that's what I was just reading to you. So he's, he's being visually descriptive. And I love that. You know, it's this warm day. Lincoln's wearing this overcoat. The sailors have the round castle. And you can visualize it, it makes all the difference. This is what people were experiencing. But again, there's that problem. They have just walked into the mall. Now more and more people are swarming around and wanting to be part of this event. This is crazy. Captain Penrose, who was the signal officer in the Army, wrote to his father later that night. Uh, he said, I never passed a more anxious time than in this walk. The guy's been in battles. He says, I've never passed a more anxious time than in this walk. In going up, and we were amongst the very first boats, we ran the risk of torpedoes and obstructions. But I think the risk the president ran in going through the streets of Richmond was even greater. He chose him to have great courage. Keep in mind, this celebrity tour of Richmond happened a week before Lee's surrender at Appomattox. And a week and a half before Lincoln attended a play at Ford's Theater. Coffin says Lincoln walked through the streets as if he were only a private citizen and not the head of a mighty nation. He came not as a conqueror, not with bitterness in his heart, but with kindness. He came as a friend to alleviate sorrow and suffering, to rebuild what has been destroyed. Now you see, he's laying on thick. But Lincoln still needs to get to Godfrey Weitzel. His tour was not so much about, here I am, look at me. There was still a war going on. And it's getting late. They're turning onto Main Street and looking west, and you can see the ruins that the Confederates have left behind when they set fire to their warehouses and it got out of control. The area that Lincoln is going to be walking towards is called the Burned District. So it's nothing but ruins, and it's very, very, very dangerous. Even Porter, 
is definitely not going to say, oh, let's walk the president through these ruins. And, you know, one falling brick could brain the president and then, you know, it's on him. So he's not having any of this. At the market, they're going to cut up onto Franklin Street. And those of you that are familiar with Richmond, you know that, that there are several side streets there that flank where the market had been. And you can get up to Franklin rather easily. The idea was to get Lincoln out of the burning ruins and direct him to a building that's now known as the White House of the Confederacy. Nobody called it that back then. You know, they either call it Jeff Davis's house or military headquarters or something like that. But he wants to get there, but he's still got that problem of all these people. This is Porter. I'm going to quote him because he's right. Even the devil gets his due. But he says, no electric wire could have carried the news of the president's arrival sooner than it was circulated through Richmond. As far as the eye could see, the streets were alive with Negroes and poor whites rushing in our direction. And the crowd increased so fast that I had to surround the president with the sailors with fixed bayonets to keep them off. They all wanted to shake hands with Mr. Lincoln or his coattail, or even to kneel down and kiss his boots. For the first time, I realized the danger in which the president was placed. <laughs> oh, yeah? The way Porter is looking at this is panic. This is terrible. He won't let me stop and go back. Somewhere along Franklin Street, something happens. Mike Gorman again quotes from the journalist Charles Coffin. We reached the base of the hill upon which stands the Capitol. Mr. Lincoln was wearing his overcoat. The afternoon was warm, the sun shining, and he halted for a brief rest. The crowd had greatly increased. A cavalryman dashed away to General Shepley's headquarters for an escort. Well, there you go. Somebody saw him finally. While thus halting, an aged Negro wearing a few rags, barefooted, without a coat, his tattered garments made from gunny cloth, whose white, crisp hair appeared through his crownless straw hat, which he lifted from his head and half kneeling with clasped hands, gave utterance to the benediction, may the good Lord bless and keep you safe, Massa President Lincoln. The president lifted his own hat from his head and bow to the old man. It was a bow which upset the forms, laws, customs, and ceremonies of centuries. It was a death shock to chivalry and a mortal wound to cast. The moisture gathered in his eyes, he wiped it away, and the procession moved. This man is saying, may the good Lord keep you safe. And he bows, the ultimate manly gesture. I recognize you as a fellow man. How many people in this man's life have bowed to him? And here's the president of the United States doing that. And everybody saw it. And when Coffin sees it, his mind is blown because this was a lowly slave two days before who's now being recognized as equal by the president of the United States. I mean, wow, wow. Often says the moisture gathered in his eyes, he begins to cry. His son's hand right there in his, his little tad, it's his birthday. This man sees him as, you know, a messiah and, you know, whoa. How could I coach an actor and say, okay, here's how you play this. Here's the emotion that you're going to you're going to latch onto. No man has done this. So when he's saying the moisture gathered in his eyes, yeah, it would me too. A moment documented in history I never knew. A moment we should all know. I warned you, Mike Gorman was the best, didn't I? At this point, Lincoln has finally been recognized by military authorities close to the Capitol, and he's taken to his destination. And now he's at the 
former White House of the Confederacy. In case the symbolism wasn't thick enough, oh boy. I'll also say that whatever Lincoln thought he was going to be doing here today, it's going to change. And it's going to change pretty dramatically once he gets inside. And that's because of who he's going to spontaneously meet inside that White House. We talked about these narratives colliding. All these formerly enslaved people have been following him the whole way. I mean, in their minds, you know, the music is swelling and this is, you know, he's going to the White House. Oh my gosh, you know, he's climbing the steps. You know, Jefferson Davis is gone. Slavery is dead forever. I mean, you can really get that, whoa. Looking at this, what would this mean to you? It's so rife with visual symbolism. At this point, thousands upon thousands of people are gathered to see Lincoln ascend those steps. Once he gets to the door, he turns around and bows to the entire crowd. Remember what happened when he bowed to one? And he's acknowledging everybody. Everybody in that crowd was feeling, for the first time, somebody acknowledged me as a man, and it was Abraham Lincoln. Whoa. And he goes into the into the White House of the Confederacy. Once inside, he's put in a reception area, a tiny room with a chair, and all Lincoln wants is a glass of water. We're assuming that at one point, an officer ran up to Weitzel, telling him President Lincoln is waiting for him in Jefferson Davis's house, and Weitzel gets there as fast as possible. Meanwhile, Lincoln is just sitting in a room waiting. Staff officers uncork some bottles and put them in a room on the other side of the house. All the white officers are, are, are flocking in. You know, they want to shake Lincoln's hand or think clearly the staff officers are redirecting them. Yes, and go into the dining room, have yourself a drink. And, you know, it's like Lincoln is sort of just off by himself. Lincoln was recuperating from his journey up the James and through the streets of Richmond. During this time, one Union officer got in touch with a man named Judge John Campbell, who was the Assistant Confederate Secretary of War. But prior to the war, he was on the U.S. Supreme Court. When the South seceded, he stayed in town. Now, he's playing it kind of close to the vest, you know, the rest of the Confederates have evacuated. He's left behind. He looks like a pretty high up kind of individual and everybody knows who he is. You know, does he have some kind of mandate from Davis? Does he have some kind of, uh, here are the terms that we might accept? You know, he's really playing a cagey. Judge Campbell apparently has an idea. He says if he can meet with the president, he can help negotiate the end of the war. So when Lincoln is just sitting in Jefferson Davis's house, Campbell is summoned. Everybody's crowding in, and now here comes Campbell, former Confederate, asked for an audience with Lincoln. Now, this could have been purely a social affair while we wait for Weitzel. Weitzel clatters up. You can just imagine his embarrassment going through that door. You know, there's this house full of people. One of them is the president of the United States. There's Admiral Porter, there's Admiral Farragut, there's generals everywhere. Well, you know, I'm, oh, oh God, I'm so out of my element, you know. And the president is like, I've got this Campbell here. Will you come with me as, as witness to whatever's gonna happen here? They go into the drawing room and close the door. Campbell comes in and says to Lincoln, if you will allow the Virginia legislature to meet, they will immediately rescind the ordinance of secession. Bringing Virginia out of the Confederacy into some sort of legal limbo with the United States, but out of the Confederacy. And thereupon, every Virginian in the army would have no more legal recourse to continue to fight. Remember, this is a lawyer, this is a judge, a Supreme Court justice. How's he looking at it? Legally. Bring in the legislature. They rescind the ordinance of, of secession. Lee and the Virginians in the army 
have no legal basis upon which to resist. They lay down their arms. The Army of Northern Virginia melts away. Boom! Virginia's back into the Union. The bloodshed stops, and we will have peace. And that is music to Lincoln's ears, even more so at this particular moment. With all of those emotions, what has he seen? The rowboat, the obstructions, the ruined city, you know, that's been a thorn in his side since 1861 is now piles of brick. And now he's got this crowd that's followed him all the way up here, you know, indicating to him, you know, you're a deliverer, you're our savior, this is our emancipation event, what are you gonna do? And now he's getting this idea from Campbell that I can do something that will end this damn war. Remember, Lee's army is still on the field. The word Appomattox is just a town on a map. John Wilkes Booth was just an actor, not a villain. The longer the war rages on, the more bodies pile up. Hundreds of thousands had already died. And Lincoln is brought this offer from a former justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Why not try it? And we could have peace by a simple presidential act. Call the Virginia legislature. Call them to meet. Weitzel chimes in and says they were trying to meet. And then all you'll have to do is just give them free passage and they're going to come right on in. And I've heard from several of these guys, these prominent men in Richmond, they want this to happen. Lincoln loves the idea and says, let's talk about it more tomorrow. And so he's going to arrange for this meeting with these prominent men. Doesn't say who. But these prominent men and Lincoln are going to meet tomorrow aboard the formerly grounded USS Malvern, which has now come up to Rocket's Landing. Lincoln, in his mind, is just, you know, I was sitting there drinking a glass of water, and here comes this dude, gives me this idea, and within 15 minutes, I have put into place a plan that is going to end this war. But this is great. This has been the best day ever. But as Mike Gorman so eloquently puts it, This is stupid. Follow with me here, folks. If the legislature can meet, you have just recognized a rebel body as legitimate. If they can do anything that you will recognize legally, you are recognizing that body to have existed in the first place. That has been the entire legal underpinning of your entire resistance. This legislature is illegal. They do not represent Virginia. And you will have just recognized them. Number two, if they have the power to legally rescind the ordinance of secession, then you just recognize their legal right to do so in the first place. So you will have recognized the legal right of secession across any legislature, rebel or otherwise, that wants to do so. Anybody see any problems with that? Because I do. Yeah, you don't think California is going to get get ornery at some point, or Ohio, or Colorado, once they realize how much silver they got under the ground, and say, you know what? No, we're our own country. Uh, well, you can't do that. Yes, I can. You just said that Virginia could do it, so we did it too. Yeah. Whoops. Kind of the whole point of the show is being undermined. Gorman points out that Lincoln is a lawyer. He's not stupid. And that thought had to have gone through his brain. On the other hand, what if that's just one of the million things we sort out after the fall? So what? If we can stop the bleeding today, stop the bleeding today. If we recognize secession in the process, yeah, but okay, I get it. Here's his opportunity. Remember, he has broken ties with Washington. Stanton is not perched on his shoulder, telling him what to do or not do. Seward's not there. I don't even want him here. I'm doing this myself. I'm going to stroke a pen and I'm going to do it. And it will mean the end of the war. Not because of my ego, not so I can say I'm the great hero of history. It's really 
make it stop. Do you not see? Please, Army, we can end this now or we can end this later. So here comes the Virginia legislature. I get it. Yeah, it's stupid. But Lincoln can do stupid things. We can do stupid things. We are allowed to be stupid. Nonetheless, April 4th, 1865 ends with President Lincoln taking a tour of Richmond, the details of which still aren't clear. He arrived at Rocket's Landing, spending the night on the USS Malvern. So the morning dawns. The Malvern is still in the river, and this is when you're going to have Campbell meet with Lincoln again with his prominent men, which turns out to be one man, Gustavus Myers, a local attorney. President Lincoln came prepared, laying out his terms. You want to do this, there can be no retreating from the Emancipation Proclamation. You basically, you come back into the Union, you lay down your arms. That's it. We're not doing this conditional. It is interesting that he mentioned specifically the Emancipation Proclamation and not the upcoming 13th and 14th Amendments, kind of dangling a potential carrot that if you come in, you might be able to vote to block the passage. Now, is that really practical? No, it was going to pass. Nonetheless, Campbell agrees to the terms, and the two men have what Mike Gorman calls a legalistic back and forth. Lincoln clearly has thought about this on a legal basis by this time. And when they leave, Campbell and Weitzel are working together to make this happen. And Lincoln feels like, I've done it. I have made a situation happen that might in the war. Lincoln will then get in another boat and go back to City Point. He will never come back to Richmond. As he floats down the journey, he had a lot of time to think about it and doesn't change his mind when he gets down to City Point. And that's when Weitzel and Campbell start to make things happen in Richmond. They form a committee and put a notice in the Richmond newspaper calling the Virginia legislature back. It's worth noting, Lincoln never gave Weitzel written orders, and that will complicate things when Lincoln arrives back in Washington. Stanton sees this in the Richmond newspaper before Lincoln can tell him about it. Poor, poor Weitzel. As time goes on, it's so clear that by not giving Weitzel any written orders, he had condemned because Stanton was having at him. It looked like he was, he'd was he gone rogue. You know, this is not something that even if he hadn't gone rogue that Stanton can say would be the act, actions of President Lincoln. So even when Lincoln gets back up to DC, which he did on April 9th, 1865, just in time to receive the news of Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the bands are playing. People are calling for, you know, an extemporaneous speech there on the White House grounds. The front of his mind is not poor Weitzel in this plan, which Weitzel is down in Richmond, still trying to implement. And a few days before the president goes to see a play at Ford's Theater, he's sifting through his mountains of congratulatory mail, and he finds a letter from Weitzel that lamented. You didn't give me any orders. What am I supposed to do? Stan's coming at me hard. And remember, this now Lee has surrendered. This has changed everything. Everything is, I mean, screw that. Who cares about the legislature now? Nobody. Plan's dead, dude. You know, let it go. So Lincoln is basically saying, I, at this point, you start to see him. He's back in Washington. He starts behaving more again like the creature of Washington. Seward and Stanton do get to it and tell him, you know, this is monstrous. You've got to stop this. And so he does send a letter to Weitzel saying, call it off. The potential disaster that Weitzel is blamed for creating prompts the military to relieve him of command of Richmond. And he had to have been just like, thank you. <laughs> you, thank you, thank you. I'm not in the crosshairs anymore. He was put in command of the U.S. Colored Troops and ordered to Texas, where those regiments became the original Buffalo Soldiers of the West. They suffered colossal losses in disease, probably more so than they did in combat. It is a disaster to look at. Not our finest hour, but they were shipped from Richmond along with Weitzel. 
Weitzel's out of the picture. The plan is dead, all because Lee surrenders. And Lincoln, as far as he's concerned, well, we tried that. Didn't work. And the focus of Lincoln's presidency turns to the idea of peace. What will it look like? What does it mean for former slaves? What does it mean writ large for America? Are there going to be equal protections under the law? That's a legitimate question. Okay, we free the slaves. Now can they vote? Can they bear witness in a trial? Could they marry your white daughter? Can they own property? So now, you know, you see that window closing on the time where Lincoln could sort of be on his own, maybe for his for the first time in his presidency. I've got the power. I'm, I'm doing it. It's me. This is all me. My time. Goes back to Washington. It's Seward. It's Stanton. It's Congress. <laughs> But for that brief, maybe weak tops, we see Lincoln behaving like a man. Not as Abraham Lincoln, you know, war scorned seven years ago. No, a guy whose wife leaves him in a hut. Whose little boy is enjoying a birthday. Who's acting stupid. Coming up with the answer yes to bad ideas. Why? Because I can't. And that is what is compelling. In the end, what comes out of this meeting? Nothing, except for Weitzel's damaged and destroyed career. We can't say this led to any kind of great change or great epiphany. It's the only chance we ever get to see Lincoln do Reconstruction. And not with his cabinet, not with Lincoln, surrounded by Washington creatures. Lincoln himself, here's what I want. And what do you see? Over and over again, it's bloodless, it is potentially legalistic, ill-thought-out spur of the moment. Maybe that's who he was at heart. Maybe Seward and Stanton were important to reigning in those tendencies. But it's our only chance to see the different America that Lincoln had in mind when Richmond fell and before Lee surrendered. When people ask me, what's this all about? That's it. It's not what happens. It's what you see. It's the impression that you get. It's an incredible impression. And it all happens right here in Richmond. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of How We Got Here. It was written by Colton Weekly and edited and hosted by me, Rachel DePampa. Many, many thanks to phenomenal guest Mike Gorman with the Richmond National Battlefield Park. Also, thank you to executive producer Colton Weekly. Our usual partner in podcast crime, Kate Albright, has moved on to bigger and better things. She got a new job, everyone. Congratulations to her, and we thank Kate for all of her help and guidance on these many seasons. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. If you have a question or comment, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. Follow us on Instagram, HowWeGotHereVA. If you use Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It really does help others find us. And we do hope to be back in your life sometime soon. Sometime soon.